Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. What an amazing week last week, Tyler. Absolutely. November 8th, of course, as every single human being in America, I believe, understands, was an election day. And it was monumental. Uh, It's not over. We're recording this on Sunday. The Senate uh, is not completely formed. The House is still uncertain. Uh, So the election uh, is not entirely over. But boy, there's been some significant changes. And uh, I'm just really interested to see what all of that means, Tyler, for the ocean and coastal agenda. Uh, So it's been a hell of a week. It has been a hell of a week, and it's been, I'm sure, exciting for everyone out there to watch as the results come in. But one of the things that the news isn't isn't really covering, Peter, is how will this election impact the ocean and coastal space? And for that, Peter, we have a wonderful guest to come in and walk us through the impacts of this election on our part of the world. We do. And this is such a it's such a perfect we have the perfect guest to kick off this week, post-election week. Emily Petrolia is joining us from Washington, D.C. She is the founder and the CEO of an organization called ESP Advisors. She's a veteran of Capitol Hill. Uh, she's a member of the Coastal Society Board, and uh, she works on on, in a bipartisan fashion on ocean and coastal issues on Capitol Hill. She's, uh, she's a professional and uh, deep into the issue. So we're going to get a chance to uh, get Emily's perspective on what this election might mean for ocean and coastal fans out there in America. Well, Peter, you know, I like to say that on this show, we like to nerd out. And today we get to wonk <laughs> out, which I particularly love. It's going to be a great show, but first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest Questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Emily, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast at this critical moment in the uh, political process in America. Thanks for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we always like to... uh, to begin by letting our audience know more about who we're talking to. And I got to tell you, looking at ESP Advisors and the team you have assembled, uh, what what a great firm and uh, a really powerful group of people. This is a women-owned firm. Uh, Emily, talk to us about, as the founder and the CEO of ESP Advisors, talk to us about 
how this firm came into being and what you hope to accomplish in setting up ESP Advisors. Well, thank you so much again. Always happy to, to talk about the love of my life, this firm. <laughs> um, so I started ESP Advisors uh, just shy of three years ago. We started on March 1st, 2020, which was a little tumultuous, <laughs> uh, if anyone remembers. Part of the pandemic. Yeah, or the, right at the beginning. Beginning I, of the I, pandemic. I had just left my, my job. I was working at a wonderful lobbying firm um, downtown, which I, I learned a lot and had a great time working with um, great companies and great colleagues. But I didn't really get to work on oceans issues as much, which was you know my passion and career leading up to that point. So I decided to see what happened if I struck out on my own and see if I could build a book of business. Um, and I think, you know, there was some silver lining with the pandemic where it kind of, you know, became chaos in a lot of ways that everyone knows how it affected their lives and, you know, the cadence of, of how they work. It really did change how things work in DC and in Congress. And so if you kind of weren't already nimble and ready to pivot to the changing conditions, you found yourself behind um, a lot of the time. So I think the fact that we were new and there was a, there was that big change happening um, and that we really do our best and, and focus on leading with empathy and compassion uh, in a situation that's of, often filled with strife, uh, I think that helped us a lot to grow. And so by the end of that first year, uh, I, I asked one of my mentors, I said, when, when do you know when you're big enough to hire someone else. And, and she said, well, it's when you're pulling your hair out, <laughs> you can't, you, you, you can't just get out from under the workload. So I hired my first uh, staff in December of that year. We've just grown ever since. Right now we're a team of nine. We actually have a new person starting on Monday and we have an open position hoping to hire by the end of the year. So we've been growing like crazy. Um, our mission is to elevate ocean priorities. So really focused on that. We do a lot of ocean adjacent work, but ocean's kind of the core of where our passion lies. We do government relations and strategic communications. Um, and we sort of have a team to, to fit that mold. Um, in terms of, you know, politics, I came from a Republican office. Our, uh, I worked for Senator Thune when I was on the Hill on the Senate Commerce Committee. I actually worked for Senator Whitehouse from Rhode Island before that, so I'm a flip-flopper, I'll admit it. Mm -hmm. Good. <laughs> I, I, I don't really ascribe all that much to, to the politics um, writ large, just really care about the issues. Um, but our COO, Kat Montgomery, she came from Senator Wicker's office, from Republican from Mississippi, and Pamela Day is one of our senior policy advisors, and she was on the Hill for 25 years on the Republican side. Um, for I think 16 or 17 years as chief of staff for the late great Congressman Don Young from Alaska. So a really, really great team on the Republican side. And then actually just stepping back a little bit with us, but been, has been working with us for a year, Christine Sir, uh, who is senior policy advisor for Mr. Huffman, uh, the lead Democrat on the Water, Oceans and Wildlife Subcommittee of House Natural Resources. She's absolutely wonderful, just going to be a little bit more of the background with us. And then we have Stacy Knight, uh, who's a policy manager and was most recently with Consortium for Ocean Leadership. So a great team on the GR side, and it's been fun to build it. Well, it's an inspiration, Emily. I have to say, I've, I've been following along as you launched right there at the tippy, tippy top of 
the COVID-19 pandemic and your firm has grown and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, the Peter, we talk about it all the time on this show. The ocean in coastal space is siloed off. And we think about all of these issues, be it erosion or port waterway maintenance or uh, decarbonizing shipping. These, these things tend to get siloed away. But ultimately, they are all interconnected. And having a firm there in D.C. to help sort out how these things are connected, where there are allies, where there are people who are educated in various offices that can help carry the torch, this is really how policy gets done. And Emily, uh, I, I know that Peter and I both want to congratulate you on on building this firm and getting it off the ground to where it is today. I'm sure it's a tremendous asset for the coastal community, the ocean community at large. And you guys have a tremendous portfolio. Some of our uh, our friends here from Force Blue, for example, I understand you guys work with them and others that uh, our audience would be familiar with. So uh, it really is a tremendous thing. I love to, to follow along. And as I said, it's really necessary. This is a complicated space. It's hard to... <laughs> wrap your mind around all of the different ways that the sausage gets made. And uh, that's what I'm hoping to talk about with you today, because we just went through this, really, I mean, it was like a high wire act, this election. My nerves were all over the place, but we are beginning to see some results. And you and your team have been tracking this election and its impacts on the coastal and ocean space the entire time. Emily, can you give us a 50,000-foot view of how you think this uh, election impacted the ocean and coastal space? Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to start by first saying and reiterating everything you just said, that oceans are very important, and they are also very bipartisan. Um, I think most people would agree with that. And most people, when you ask them, do you care about you know, goods insert good goods reaching you, or be, you know, being able to export and, and having a strong economy. Do you care about being able to enjoy recreation at the beaches or, or fishing or eating seafood? Those are things everyone cares about. Um, we do disagree on the details, plenty, but I would say sometimes a lot of times the disagreements are geographic when it comes to Congress and less Republicans versus Democrats. Um, so this election showed us, you know, on a large scale that we are still, you know, like you said, tight wire, very, you know, right on the middle, like we were, we had historic, um, historically thin margins in the last Congress. And when I say Congress, I mean, the two years of a Congress, which is sort of the governing body for those two years. So we're at the end of the 117th United States Congress. With this election, we're, we're deciding who is going to be in the next two year Congress, which will be the 118th. So it's looking like we will have, you know, we'll have Democrats controlling the Senate again, and possibly they will even net one additional seat. We'll find out in December. And it's looking like Republicans will take over the House as expected, but by very, very, very thin margins both ways. And what that means for oceans is, of course, when you have a change in political leadership in one or both chambers, the top line um topics are going to change. I think, you know, Republicans are going to be very focused on oversight into, you know, what happened with all the big funds that just went out the door and the, you know, the three big pieces of legislation, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, now called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. I still call it IAJA because I like accuracy in my acronyms. (laughs) 
um, the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which there was a much former iteration called the Build Back Better Act, um, and then the America Competes Act, which became uh, Chips and Science. So those were two, three big um, bills that did impact the oceans and environment science and research. And Republicans are really going to want to um, do a lot of oversight into how the Biden administration is implementing those laws and those dollars. Um, and also just, you know, want to say to everyone, as terrible as it sounds, welcome to the 2024 presidential election <laughs> because we are here. And as much as, you know, oceans don't really get to play in that big space at the national level, it is, you know, pardon the pun, it is the water we swim in. So it's something to think about. Well, it's 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 significant the a transformation that's going to happen in the 118th. I think it's pretty clear at this point. Most people do expect the Republicans to have the House, so we'll have a divided Congress. Uh, I think that's kind of healthy these days when there is as much partisan difference in view in the United States. Uh, the agenda, it, it, when you're looking at ocean and coastal issues um, f- on behalf of your clients. Uh, is there a legislative agenda uh, that you would like to pursue, either in the lame duck session between now and and the swearing in of the 118th uh, Congress in January, or once the 118th is sworn in? Uh, what's on your list of uh, legislative priorities, if you don't mind saying? Absolutely. So, and again, coming back to kind of the bipartisanship that makes talking about politics sometimes unexciting when it comes to oceans, but makes me very excited. There's so much um, that is a bipartisan priority across the aisle that we are working hard on right now to get passed before this Congress ends, but that you know we still feel pretty good about, even if it doesn't pass this Congress, we can work on it next Congress. And the reason for that is... Um, when you think about the Senate, you know, we have the filibuster, as everybody knows. And so even when one party or the other is in control, you still need 60 votes to pass most legislation. And that's if you bring it to the floor, which in the Senate, which is the deliberative body, it takes a long time to consider a piece of legislation on the floor. And there's only so many weeks in the year when they're in session. So the bill has to be really important to deserve floor time. As much as I hate to say it, ocean bills are often not important enough to deserve floor time, although maybe someday that will change. It's important enough, but also is it political enough? And so most ocean legislation passes Congress, because the Senate is usually the thing kind of holding things up, um, by something that's known as the hotline, which is very quiet. It's behind the scenes. You can't really find out about it unless you have friends who will tell you about it. Um, But basically, a bill goes on the hotline, and if no one objects to it out of all 100 senators, that it just quietly passes into the night. And so many of the bills we're working on are bills that would pass through that hotline process, which is why I keep going back to, of course, elections matter in so many ways. But for a lot of the ocean um, governance legislation that we work on, it needs all 100 senators. So the individuals matter almost more than the politics. Um, but what we're working on, we're, we, we, we work a lot on the importance of ocean technology, 
um, t- so that we can have, you know, a renewable source of energy and way to collect data that's really important. The climate is changing. Republicans and Democrats agree on that increasingly. Um, and we need to understand what's happening in our oceans. The change is happening faster than we've ever seen before. We're kind of entering this brave new world and we really need a lot more observational resources out there to just watch what's happening and and try our best to adapt as it changes. So a lot of that science research, you know, ocean observations and technology needed to do it are things that we're working on a lot, um, especially in the upcoming National Defense Authorization Act. Yeah, 100%. I like to say if you want to understand or you want to see uh, what climate change is all about, uh, look in the ocean, don't look in the air. Uh, the most vivid changes, the most visible manifestations of climate uh, change can be observed in uh, pretty pretty real time in our ocean and coastal spaces. Uh, the transformation and uh, migration of fisheries, important commercial fishery stocks, uh, change in ocean chemistry, uh, ocean currents, and a lot of other things. Uh, and I think you're quite right. Uh, ocean technology observation capacity becomes super important. Uh, the Marine Technology Society, a great organization, one of your uh, fine clients. Um, can you talk about, other than uh, the ocean tech universe, on the policy side, um, are you involved at all in uh, ocean uh, energy, offshore wind, or in uh, how we're managing uh, our oil and gas leases offshore? Is that a topic that is uh, in your in your uh, bucket and uh, help us understand what you see what you see coming in ocean energy. So it's a huge huge topic, and we do work um, a little bit on the fringes. We don't work on behalf of uh, any of the energy companies, be it oil or gas or offshore wind. We do work with um, with groups that represent fishermen, and so Responsible Offshore Development Alliance is one of the groups that we work with. Um, we don't do lobbying, but we do, um, you know, help them to keep up to date of what's going on, the the many, many bills that are happening in Congress and, and you know, appropriations for offshore wind. So, you know, we help a little bit with thinking about siting in a way that, you know, minimally disrupts our ocean ecosystems and, you know, the coastal economies that depend on them. But yeah, there's tons of bills out there. And I think also... Um, you know, it's this this interesting question of, you know, quote unquote, industrializing the ocean. Um, that is interesting to me. I was a social scientist before I started working in, in the policy realm that we have, you know, we have a lot of feelings about the ocean, which I think is something that draws us to it. And I think it, you know, it makes us feel something or feel sad or something when you kind of see industrialization on the ocean. And so, it's interesting to me to see policy proposals and big economic, you know, futures. How are we going to mitigate climate change and get the energy we need um, coming up against that just really deep feeling that we have about the oceans and their wildness and them kind of being the final frontier on this planet. So it's just really interesting to see that play out in Congress. I could not agree more. It's one of the most interesting things. And one of the things that you said, Emily, that I find to be, uh, you know, a kind of a great unifier is that this, the ocean is really a bipartisan space. And if you look, I mean, it kind of is intuitive. Uh, 
Republicans and Democrats all love to go to the beach and look at the ocean and play in the ocean. It makes sense. Fish in the ocean. Who doesn't love the ocean? Everyone loves the ocean. But it's also true, uh, if you just look at a map, that a lot of those coastal states are not uh, Democrat states, ladies and gentlemen. There is there is a quite a few Republican states there that are coastal that are dealing with all of the same issues, coastal issues, be it erosion or offshore energy, as uh, the Democratic states. So in that respect, they share Democrats and Republicans, representatives, members from coastal states, do share kind of a similar portfolio. Emily, could you talk us through maybe an example of how coastal representatives and senators share in their kind of appraisal and interests in ocean policy? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want anyone to feel left out <laughs> by what I'm going to say. But of course not. Two offices, um, in addition to the all, you know, the Alaska offices, which we obviously work very closely with and love so much. Alaska is, you know, difficult to talk about sometimes in terms of Republicans and Democrats, because it's such a unique place with such unique people and, uh, you know, unique issues that they're facing. And so um, right now they have two Republicans in the Senate and a Democrat in the House. Um, and we love working with Alaska all the time. But other kind of more more traditional, I guess, Republican coastal folks that we love working with, Garrett Graves from coastal Louisiana and uh, Roger Wicker from coastal Mississippi or Mississippi. And both of them are so aware of the importance of the ocean, the natural resources they provide. They're really strong advocates um, for their fishermen and, you know, seafood and and restaurants. You know, it's all tied together. And uh, Garrett Graves in particular is going to be leading the Republicans' next Congress in all things climate. Um, so he's, he's a really great advocate for making sure that we address coastal erosion, you know, of course, coming from coastal Louisiana, one of the hardest hit areas in our country from, you know, lo just losing land so quickly uh, from sea level rise and, and subsidence and erosion. So he's a really great advocate for the, that, those things. Um, and I think always, you know, recognizing Republicans and Democrats are going to come at problems from different perspectives and have different ways, different ideas for solutions for them. But those are two great individuals that that really fight for their their coasts and their communities. Yeah, I think Garrett Grave uh, is a great pick uh, to lead the issue in, for Republicans in the House on climate change. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's got a pretty close cooperative relationship with um, with uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from Rhode Island, who worked together on some of the energy coastal energy bills. Uh, and those guys uh, politically are can be described as pretty, pretty different people, but I think this is a good example of, of shared interest in ocean and coastal issues. Oh yeah. I think so. That, that is absolutely true. And I think you actually see that a lot. And so it's something, if you ask um, Senator Whitehouse, I've heard him say this a few times where um, he worked really closely with retiring uh, Senator Inhofe mm -hmm. on the save our seas bill, the original one, um, which addressed plastic pollution in our oceans and has done some really great things around the world that we've been working on as well. And, you know, uh, Senator Inhofe probably couldn't be more far away from <laughs> Senator Whitehouse in terms of climate, you know, he's the one who brought the snowball into the, the snowball? Senate chamber. Was that, that was yeah. When he brought the snowball on the floor and said, see, it's still cold. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> was. still winter. 
And by the way, I also, I love Senator Inhofe a lot and great staff and he, you know, left a great legacy and we'll definitely miss him uh, next Congress. But I think that's a great example. And they will both talk about that of, um, yes, there's national politics. And of course there's places where they can't work together, but I think you still find, even though things continue to move more and more partisan, you still find people willing to work really strongly together on issues where they agree. And that's what keeps me going at the end of the day. It's wonderful to see it. I think the American people more and more are beginning to expect a return to that kind of cooperative work. It doesn't mean, as you say, that issues are in in complete agreement between uh, people on either side of the aisle or that they approach the problems the same way in terms of crafting solutions. But uh, meaningful work needs to get done uh, to keep up with the challenges uh, in the ocean and coastal sector. It is a massive part of the American economy. It's incredibly important. Um, When you're looking at the 118th Congress, Emily, uh, what are you excited about? What are you hoping to see happen? What I'm excited about is, to your point, finding that middle ground. Um, I do think that things will slow down on the legislative front partially because we will have a divided, you know, Congress, but also because again, we're going into a presidential election and and things just tend to get a little bit more um, national politics and kind of public uh, stunt oriented. So we'll, we'll be standing by to see plenty of that. Um, but are you saying that that's bad for uh, sausage making? Public does that not help the sausage making process when we're doing public stunts? You know, sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. If you can be in a position, to, you know, to bring yourself or, or your clients, in my case, um, to be that 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 softening edge for someone who's up for re-election, like, oh look. They do this great thing for oceans or, you know, science or, or what have you. I think that can be a place that you, where you can leverage the uh, awareness of upcoming elections, but it's generally not great for <laughs> civility. <laughs> Emily, one of the major accomplishments in the last legislative session, the uh, infrastructure bill, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, or I think you had, you had, you used the entire full name of that bill up. Uh, there was a massive investment in that bill in American ports and waterways. Uh, from your perspective as a, a Hill veteran and someone who worked in the committees in the Senate and with members, uh, how would you rate that bill uh, in terms of the investment made in in our water resources infrastructure? And of course, we have to kind of maybe throw in wordy here, but uh, how do you think how do you think Congress did when it comes to uh, port and waterway infrastructure? Oh my gosh. I was just going to say, I think what I'm most excited about in the next two years is seeing the continued implementation of um, that the bipartisan infrastructure law and the IRA Infl- Inflation Reduction Act. Um, unprecedented. I hate to say that word because I'm pretty tired of hearing it <laughs> over the last three years, but it was, and then WERDA, you know, expected to pass in the NDAA in the upcoming um, session which is, you know, always a great bill and there's lots of great stuff in there, but yeah, really unprecedented. We're seeing also a lot of bipartisan interest in uh, maritime decarbonization and super excited about that. It's one of those issues that, that gets me really excited because it's bipartisan, 
it's complicated, it's global, and are we going to lead or are we going to follow? And it's one of those kind of inflection points point moments. And I think there's a lot of interest in how can we enable the research and development that's needed and what do we need from our leaders in terms of you know, signaling or decision-making so that the industry can move together, you know, with confidence into the future with shipbuilding, which is such a, you know, huge investment in long, over a long time scale. Um, so that's been interesting. We've been working a lot with our client Aspen Institute on that, and there's a lot of opportunity and we're seeing, you know, increasing funding for it in those bills and in appropriations. But I think that members of Congress are looking for what else they can do. And so that's a really exciting space. No doubt about it. And uh, Emily, I'd love for you to talk, you we you kind of tickled it, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about this process of, I mean, we, we all watched, ladies and gentlemen, as the uh, Inflation Reduction Act was passed. I mean, I, I that kind of caught me off guard. Mansion was out there with cinema kind of, kind of, I don't know, I didn't think it was going to happen. All of a sudden it happened and it's historic, as you said, an unprecedented amount of uh, funding coming through. But that's not the end of the story. I mean, now this needs to be implemented. How does ESP advisors, uh, after the bill is passed, I mean, arguably the lobbying has kind of occurred. What's the follow through like? How 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 do how how does that process go from from your perspective, Emily? So you were not the only one who was caught off guard. <laughs> I was laughing with my team because I think that same week uh, the Senate also dropped their draft appropriations bills, and then. You know, I know where the secret deal between Schumer and Manchin got released and passed within a week. It was crazy. Um, but yeah, very exciting. And so the so I just a note about lobbying because I think this is something that is worth repeating and we always talk with our clients about is it is a full-time engagement from start to finish. And so the IRA, for example, is a piece of legislation that was written completely behind closed doors, probably by six people, but they didn't come up with the, all of those ideas on their own, right? There had been discussions over, you know, at least a year, if not longer, about what are good, where are good places to put money? Where can they really make an impact? Who's doing a great job? What is the biggest need? What are some policy changes we might need? And those conversations had been happening over the past one, two, three, five years. And so everyone was kind of locked and loaded for this moment. And so there's a lot of advocacy and education that has to go in before those big bills just, you know, jump and move all of a sudden, which is increasingly how um, legislating is working in Congress. But then you know, we're, we're not going to stop for five years. We're going to engage with the agencies in the White House and with Congress on how those dollars are implemented and just kind of helping to make sure that they're getting the most impact. So with some of our clients who are going to be receiving those dollars, we're very excited for them. We're going to help. We're helping them to make sure that, um, again, the funds are implemented well and then tell that story really well so that you know, the people who helped to get that legislation, those dollars out the door can, you know, reap the benefits, of course, in terms of being able to show the progress that's being made. Again, all of this ties into the 2024 election. So with the IRA being a Democrats only bill, uh, Democrats, are, you know, the president and all of all the Democratic members of Congress are going to be really interested in seeing 
great success stories out of that. And so that's something we work on. And IIJA, more, you know, a bipartisan bill, same story. There's five years of funding there, at least for NOAA. The first two are committed. The next three are still to be decided. And it's an iterative process. And that bill, and that law in particular, Congress has to approve the spend plan. So there are lots of ways to help um, just kind of make sure there's they're going in the right direction with those funds. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I think you mentioned that uh, should the Republicans uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, gain the House, uh, that oversight of these expenditures under the Infrastructure Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, and other uh, major programs that were, were passed through Congress uh, last session or the current in the current session, I think that's a positive thing. I think we all want to see uh, these funds used effectively and produce the benefits that the American people would like to see. Um, and you know what? I it, to hear that that this is the nature of the oversight that the Republicans might bring as House leaders uh, is great because there's a lot of other things that they've talked about spending time chasing down uh, that are of less interest, I think, to the American people. Um, but as you say, we're going into a, a presidential election cycle now, and, and things can be a little performative during this period. <laughs> but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that these bills are effectively implemented. There's a lot of significant problems and a bunch of money put together here that uh, Congress uh, uh, allocated. So are you optimistic about the implementation of these uh, these 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 bills? I am optimistic. I think that, I mean, truly, these bills and these dollars could stand to make a very big difference in the areas of ocean science um, and climate adaptation. It is, you know, I think <laughs> if you talk to an appropriator, so as folks probably know in Congress, there's authorizers and appropriators and there's authorizing legislation which allows the executive branch to do things and then there's appropriations which gives them funding to do the things and they don't always align in fact often they don't but so um these the ira and iija were written and that's the bil uh written by authorizers and so you can kind of you can kind of get the sense from appropriators that they would have maybe you know done things a little bit more clearly or carefully. I've heard some gripes that the language is really vague. So I think that we, I, I agree, oversight is important. It's a lot of, you know, American taxpayer dollars going to address important issues, but need to make sure that the dollars are spent well. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And I think, you know, oversight will be something both Republicans and Democrats will be interested in. It'll just, you know, the politics of it will obviously be different. And to the, to the point about, um, yes, that there's been talk of, you know, uh, going into, uh, you know, the Bidens and, and, and their history. And even there's been talk of impeachment in the house. But if you think about oceans, you know, that stuff again is just kind of the water we swim in, not really so much affecting us on the committee level. I, I'm interested to hear what, um, to see what hearings they, they want to do, what they want to learn more about from constituents and the agencies and others, and where they want to do oversight. I think it's an exciting opportunity. Well, I agree. And 
I'll tell you, we've been, Emily, we've been following along uh, pretty closely as the politics of the American shoreline has unfolded before our eyes the past several years, as I know you have starting this firm. Uh, it's definitely been an exciting time. One of the things that I, I can say we noticed is we went from kind of the uh, climate change kind of partisan denialism era into kind of a new era where all of a sudden Republicans were maybe not out front on climate change, but certainly not holding in that uh, strong denialism uh, strategy politically, rhetorically. Um, but also we're following along with the North Atlantic right whale, one of the most interesting stories on the American shoreline. Uh, this, of course, involves the lobster fishery up in Maine and uh one of our most critically endangered whales, the North Atlantic right whale. We've covered it quite a bit on this show. Uh, Emily, do you see uh, in the next Congress any sort of federal movement, be it legislation or at the uh, agency level to advance this, to get this problem solved? I mean, Peter, we've talked about it on the show. We think, we think here spitballing from, from ASPN World Headquarters, that we need to be buying the lobstermen uh, ropeless pots, basically, that their fishing gear needs to modernize uh, so that it's less impactful. I know that this has become kind of a hot button political issue uh, in Maine, and uh, it's gone a little, <clears throat> I mean, I'm hesitant to use this term, but I'm going to say it's gone a little Trumpy. It's gone a little bit, you know, you know, screw, screw Noah, screw the rules, screw the whale. Uh, we we want to catch our, our lobsters and and uh, have this way of life. What's your opinion on that? Do you see any daylight or opportunity for uh, the feds to kind of help this help this whale and help this uh, problem? Gosh, this is a, such a tough issue. Um, and I'll admit we, we're not actively working on it right now. But of course, I am tracking and, and from Massachusetts. Uh, near Gloucester. So uh, in a, a region of the country, it's very near and dear to my heart. And it's just a really, really tough one on all sides. What I can say is, um, you know, there's, a, as we all know, there's a lot of backlash to some of NOAA's regulations to address this issue, especially with, you know, uh, shipping, uh, shipping speed, steam speeds. So, mm-hmm. I would expect there, there's there to be it to be increasingly political. I would say, um, Senator Collins from Maine is going to take on a very important role next Congress. She will become the the lead Republican for the Senate Appropriations Committee, which you know, as we talked about earlier, decides where all the money goes every year. Fingers crossed every year. <laughs> um, so, you know, t- to that extent, that's just another uh, place where the main delegation is becoming even more powerful. And, you know, she and others have been, you know, very clearly on the side of the lobstermen. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, it is going to be interesting. I, I, I go back and forth on this uh, issue. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm in an optimistic frame of mind tonight when I'm thinking about it. Um, <clears throat> Here's why. Uh, the main lobster fishery is incredibly lucrative, um, the most valuable fishery in the U.S., according to some NOAA statistics. There's a lot of money. Uh, the, the fishery itself is quite healthy. Uh, the fishermen are making money, more money right now than they ever have, and they've been making money kind of hand over fist for the last almost five to ten years. 
this, uh, and that has to do with climate change in a beneficial way. They're in the sweet spot of climate change up there in the Gulf of Maine. But a lot of money, so it's not a stressed fishery right now. Uh, there is a technological solution. Uh, it, there's quite a bit of resistance to it. Um, that is, as Tyler mentioned, the ropeless fishing gear technology. I'm, you know, I'm not often a fan of throwing money at problems, but I am on this one. I think we ought to buy those damn traps, make sure that fishermen don't have to pen, spend a penny to do it, and provide them whatever support they need and see if we can reduce these vertical lines um, that are in the water. Uh, the problem that I, I think could sideswipe uh, the success here, I think there's a couple of things, but 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 one of them is uh, the notion that has really seemed to solidify in the political dialogue around this issue is that the lobster fishery really doesn't have anything to do with the decline in the right whale. Uh, Patrice McCarran and the folks at the, uh, the Maine Lobstermen's Association are asserting that there's no concrete evidence that any of the lines are from lobster traps, and none of the lines are marked, of course, by the way, uh, on purpose. Um, but I do think that the solidification of this idea that the lobster lobster fishery is really an ancillary part of the threat to these whales uh, is where the fundamental fact difference seems to be. And uh, every elected official on both sides of the island, Maine, that I've read about seems to be lining up behind the fishermen, the lobstermen. We love them to death. Everybody loves lobster. These are hardworking people. They're very appealing from a political standpoint. Um and there's not a huge uh, number of whales that are voting, and there's only 340 of these whales left. So each whale should get like a hundred thousand votes. Like I, I think, and you know, <laughs> if one shows up with a you know a mark that it has been entangled, I think it should get an extra vote. <laughs> I mean, Emily, are you? Can we work our way through this? Because the reason I think it's important to focus on whether we can handle the complexity of this issue is. It really is representative of what climate change is going to mean in terms of the, re, the rebalancing of the economic interests on the American shoreline. This is a case study in what's going to be happening in, in a variety of different settings. But can we work through this successfully, keep these this whale population stable and keep the fishery? Can we have both? Is there a way through this? And if I knew the answer to that, I would be making millions of dollars <laughs> or maybe I'd be an elected official myself. I mean, I, I, I think, and this is another one of those issues, not to kind of take it out of the details and back to the big picture, but where we are clashing, um, but we all, we all care, you know, about the existence of whales. And of course we care about our fishermen and our coastal communities and all of the many benefits that cascade from a healthy uh, fishery. So, you know, I, I, this is, it's a tough one. I don't know. I hope so. I hope we can find a way to, you know, get the right gear or put the right money in place. Again, if anyone can do it, Susan Collins ha will have, you know, a lot of power even though her party won't be leading in the Senate. Um, so God willing, there's, you know, a solution that we can, we can truly throw money at and, and, and help solve it. Um, so, so hopefully I think the the politics are in a, in a good place for that to be the case. I'm glad to hear that. I, I it, it's a challenge. It's not an easy issue. And, uh, uh, I, I would like to get again as sort of a, a veteran Hill observer, someone who is, uh, very close to the decision-making uh, process on Capitol Hill on ocean and coastal issues. Uh, 
Do you have a prognosis about where we are going to end up on wind power? Uh, the Biden administration has pushed very hard uh, for this 30 uh uh, megawatts, is it megawatts or gigawatts of power? It's got to be gigawatts, buddy. I mean, that I think we're going so big, it's got to be giga. Big push on wind power. Uh, this is not an easy issue. It has significant impacts on other coastal uh, resource users, particularly the fishing community, but not simply that. Uh, do you think we, what, what do you expect to see happen on offshore wind power in the next Congress, if anything? You know, I'm not seeing a lot of pushback against offshore wind power, even, you know, um, which which can be a challenge. I think there could be a little bit more uh, recognition of some of the challenges that it poses. Um, and a lot of it is kind of quiet. I, honestly, I'm, I'm pretty surprised by it. So I don't expect too much to change. Obviously, the Biden administration is is really um, pushing for it. There's a lot of leases opening up on the East Coast and now turning to the West Coast. And a lot of the R&D, you know, money that you're seeing going through um, to DOE, etc., is for, you know, figuring out how to be able to do floating turbines in, in the deeper waters on the, in the Pacific. And I, I'm not seeing. I'm not expecting anything to to change drastically from a congressional point of view. On the agency side, of course, they will continue to push the president's priorities for the next two years. I think the big question for offshore wind is who wins the presidential election in 2024. Well, I'm 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 hoping to see uh, progress made in another case where we've got a new emerging industry on the American shoreline in this offshore wind power industry. Uh, folks down on the Gulf of Mexico, like where Tyler and I uh, have resided, uh, we're used to seeing uh, offshore oil and gas facilities, offshore uh, lights on the horizon and all of it. Uh, uh, there are sections of the country where this will be a, a new and somewhat disruptive industrial use of the coast. Um, it does have implications for other serious economic interests. And uh, it's another one where I'm hoping we can get it right. Um, the thing that struck me about uh, what happened this year was the, uh, was the uh, offshore energy lease sale off of New York, New Jersey, uh, that brought in $4.37 billion into BOEM, um, a, a figure for offshore energy leases that outstripped any at least ever done on the oil and gas side of things. And there's clearly an economic interest here. And uh, there is uh, opportunity for coastal communities to benefit, uh, new jobs, better economy. Uh, I'm hoping we can we can sort that out. And, and um, it sounds like you're not seeing anything that's, in, that's terribly disruptive to that industry's emergence, uh, at least legislatively, on the horizon. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think... Uh, it's an interesting issue, right? It kind of flips the script a little bit because, uh, you know, in very broad strokes, typically Republicans are supporting, you know, industry, you know, as long as it's it's done, you know, safe and 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 fairly, you know, industry moving forward and, and helping to grow our economy and benefiting everyone in that way. Um, and then, you know, there's some of, they are kind of the detractors from offshore wind in some cases, in that, you know, it impacts, you know, fishermen and, and others. 
And Democrats are kind of in a weird position because, you know, they care so much about the environment. And of course you are disrupting the environment by putting, by, by doing construction out there. Um, but, and just, you know, disrupting the whales and, and there's a lot of noise. And I went to URI for grad school. So got to work with a lot of folks when we were first building the block Island, um, those five turbines out there. So it's, I, I think it's a really fascinating issue because it flips the script for both parties, but yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't see anything stopping it. And for, and one of the big reasons is, is what you pointed out is there's a lot of money um, flooding into the country to, to do this. And so no one's really incentivized to stop it. And I think a little bit to the detriment of, of, of the fishermen um, or some decisions are being, and in, in some cases, maritime safety, where some decisions are being made without a lot of um, consultation. But I am really encouraged to see a lot more um, work, uh, a lot more NOAA and BOEM coordination, where it's kind of shocking how little there was until pretty recently. So excited to see that continue. Well, I, I, I'm, I agree. It is an exciting development on the American shoreline, and it does flip the script. And, you know, one of the things, Emily, that I want to ask you is when you meet with uh, representatives, Congress people and their staffs, how informed they are uh, on the ocean uh, portfolio um, generally. And I know some are some are experts and others are probably uh, newbies, but I, I am interested in that. The reason why I say that is because increasingly, be it offshore wind, be it coastal erosion, what we just saw Peter happening in Florida after this hurricane uh, came in, uh, <clears throat> coastal and ocean issues are are becoming more, uh, I'm going to say high profile. Climate change and the fact that climate change impacts are occurring all over the United States, let alone all over the American shoreline, are going to, I anticipate, become increasingly more important uh, in the in the political rhetoric and the political discussion. And Emily, I'm just curious how when you go in there and you you're meeting with, you know, say it's a new person, uh, how do people respond to the information to the communication? Do they see? Do you see from the political side that there's kind of an optimism of, oh, you know, we can work with this. There there is some uh, there's a there's a positive vision forward with the ocean. I, I completely agree. I, everyone that I've talked to on the member level and, you know, mostly to the staff level who are coastal, they are very passionate about the impacts, right? So you talk to anyone and they, you know, a, a sitting member of Congress or a freshman, they know about the fishermen in their community. They know about, you know, coastal flooding and, you know, certainly hurricanes and erosion um, and and the costs of restoration and and all of those things harmful algal blooms is a big one people talk about all the time um, that's that's pretty common I think where you don't see people really being able to speak off the cuff is what agencies are doing what to kind of address and solve those problems. And so that's some, that's where we kind of work to connect the dots because again, everyone cares, and that's such a great thing. Everyone cares about oceans. Where the ball kind of gets dropped is connecting the dot to, okay, well we need to tweak this law or start a new one, or these two groups need to talk to each other and they're not, and you need to mandate that they do, or these folks need more money to do this great work that they're doing 
to, you know, track and forecast harmful algal blooms, for example, so that, you know, your coastal tourism industry can, can stay strong going into the future. That's the, that's what's missing, I think, a lot. And that's, that's usually what we're working on is helping to get members and their staff educated on, you know, specifically what little programs, you know, they know about NOAA, but maybe they don't know about like, you know, five lines down a, a, a relatively small program that's doing great, great things. So that's where, that's where we kind of advocate. You know, uh, people, people can complain sometimes about the lobby uh, community and, and, and lobbyists, but it is a critical role, Emily. And I, and having worked on the Hill, uh, it's instrumental in bringing policy uh, um, solutions into focus and developing the consensus. So I think the work that you're doing on behalf of your clients and with an incredible team at ESP Advisors, uh, it's pretty great. And uh, keep doing it. And, and we wish you a very, very good 118th Congress. Uh, before we wrap this up, though, last word, we've got a lot of coastal professionals and government decision makers, state, local, federal people who listen to uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network Um what, uh, what parting uh, words would you like to leave uh, for the listeners out there, the coastal professionals who are, who are working on many of the issues that I know you track? Well, I would just like to say to all those people, thank you for your service and everything that you're doing uh, you know, for the country and the world. It's, it's important. It might feel like a small piece of the pie, but it adds up to something. We're making progress. I see a lot of hope even in the last two years, five years, 10 years. Oh my gosh, how much has changed? How much money has gone to these issues and how much progress we're making in the face of, you know, really scary changes. Um, so I would say, you know, your, your member of Congress would like to hear from you. The staff would like to hear from you. It's not too hard to find out who they are. Just call the main office. You can Google it and ask for the name and email of the staff who does ocean issues and offer to just tell them a little bit about what you do and see how you can help them do their job. I think there's a lot of, you know, contention again, when it comes to politics, but it's just people, it's people all the way through. And so making a connection with someone and asking how you can help and offering to be a resource for them on these issues will go a long way. Wonderful advice and counsel. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for your time uh, joining us on the show today. Thank you so much, Tyler and Peter. It was a total pleasure to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Emily Petrolia. She is the founder and the CEO of ESP Advisors. Check them out online. Uh, she's one of the great professionals working on the issues we all care about up on Capitol Hill. Emily, thank you again for your time and, and uh, sharing your insights with the listeners here on the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you. Good times.